Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, I see a lot of old faces and uh, some new faces as well. Uh, so if you're new here this morning, welcome. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to get to greet you afterwards. Please don't run out of here uh, real quick. Uh, we'd love to get to know you uh, afterwards. So if you would turn with me in uh, Jeremiah in your Bibles to chapter 7. Uh, we've been uh, going through the book of Jeremiah. We'll be reading verses 1 through 29. And to be honest with you, uh, this series has been rough uh, on us. Uh, we've been listening and hearing about our sin quite a bit. And uh, it's been pretty, pretty rough uh, because none of us like to listen to our sin, but we are confronted with it each and every week here in Jeremiah, and this week is no different. So uh, buckle up. We've got a lot to go through, um, and we also have a lot of things that we don't want to look at uh, this morning, but hopefully uh, it won't be all sort of doom and gloom and sadness and you're a terrible person, uh, but in fact that we will hear the gospel, which says that, yes, you are a terrible person, but the Lord has saved us from that. And so uh, I like to say that, you know, the Lord moves us from our, our pit, from the pit of uh, misery and shame and despair to something that is greater. And there's two ways that we can grow in that, grow in the wonder of that. We can either understand just sort of the heights that we uh, are going to be brought to better, or we can underst or understand the depths from which we have been delivered better. And so a lot of Jeremiah is sort of looking closely at the depths to see just how far we've fallen only for the Lord to deliver us from that. So uh, hopefully you've turned to Jeremiah 7 by now and uh, read with me in your Bibles. Um, uh, please follow along closely for this is the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and, and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord's of, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then... I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fa fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust 
and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kings, kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, that's Jeremiah, do not pray for these people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave to them. Be, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak these words to them, and they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Let's pray. Father, we hear these words, and uh, I hope that we are shaken. We are shaken by uh, the stubbornness, the, the lack of desire to bend the knee to you. And Lord, as we examine just how hypocritical and stubborn and blind we are, Lord, I pray that you would not leave us in that pit, that you would not leave us in just the horror of our sin, but that you would move us by your gospel of Jesus Christ to redemption, that you would see, uh, that you would show us and that we may see how your gospel transforms and captivates us. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'd like to start with a little bit of history. We're coming up on the anniversary of a big historical event uh, in just over a week and a half. Uh, many of you might know it as Halloween. Other of you might know it as Reformation Day. Uh, 501 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his... 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. It was the event that marked 
the beginning of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and his truths sort of exploded like bombs within the Roman Catholic Church, and there was a lot of upheaval um, in that time. Now, we tend to think of an event like this as sort of a seminal moment in, uh, in history, and it is, but it's also a culmination of a lot of sort of forgotten events as well. And as always, context is king. Um, and you see, Luther was reacting to a specific historical situation. Uh, he had been, he'd become disillusioned with the Catholic Church over a number of things, and many of his issues could have been summed up by saying that the church cared more about looking Christian than actually being Christian. And from his point of view, the focus had shifted. The trappings of religion had become uh, the focus of the church and had overtaken the foundations of religion. And he said this because in his day, the Catholic Church had just decided to renovate St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And it's like that really big, amazing, ornate sort uh, sort of building in Rome. And to sort of pay for these renovations, because the church didn't have that kind of money, they began to sell indulgences. Um, And for those of you that don't know what indulgences are, they're essentially little pieces of paper that said that the church would absolve you of your sin if you bought them. Um, And it was literally paying money to get rid of your sins. And obviously you can't do that. Um, And it's actually a really big deal. And for those of you that don't understand why that's a big deal, uh, paying for your sins sort of flatly flies in the face of needing Jesus to pay for your sins. Um, And uh, that's just a little bit of a big deal, okay? Uh, You know, if if we could do that, then we would have no need of Jesus going to the cross for us. And so, obviously, Luther and all of us have a big problem with this. And to Luther, this sort of long-standing preoccupation with money and construction projects were evidence that the church was not focused on spiritual transformation. They were not focused on preaching the need for repentance and forgiveness. Rather, they were focused on attending to the trappings of the church rather than the actual work of the church. And to be absolutely blunt, Jesus was no longer the center of the church's focus. Doing the things of the church had become the focus. So the church itself was at the center. So as I was thinking about the Reformation and Luther's defiant sort of act, I realized that in so many ways, Luther's arrival at the castle door that day, 501 years ago, that day, his arrival can really provide a good framework for us to approach Jeremiah 7. You see, Jeremiah was also uh, reacting to a historical situation where focus had shifted. And his response to Luther's was the same. He just started dropping sort of truth bombs all over the place, okay? And he was doing so hoping to overturn false hopes. And in so doing, Jeremiah points us to a gospel that enables us to turn from our false hopes and to replace it with a true hope. And so we're going to be looking at Jeremiah's historical situation first, and then we're going to um, look at the truth bombs that Jeremiah drops on them. And unsurprisingly, there are three of them. Um, And the first is that when the focus shifts, it blinds us. The second is that when the focus shifts, we become hypocrites. And the third is when the focus shifts, you become stubborn. So, 
first, the historical situation. Uh, we actually need to head over to Jeremiah 26 because we can find a reprint of Jeremiah's message there. So you get to look forward to this sermon again down the road, Jeremiah 26, okay? But the, it's essentially the same words, but Jeremiah 26 adds a, a historical little tidbit at the beginning of uh, this message. And it says that this message came at the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign. And at the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign, the international sort of landscape was fairly uncertain. The Assyrian Empire had crumbled uh, to the north, and to the south, Egypt was beginning to assert itself in the region. And uh, that had sort of led directly to the death of Jehoiakim's father, Josiah. Now, after Josiah's death, it wasn't Jehoiakim that was supposed to become king. It was Jehoaz. Okay, lots of Jeho stuff, okay? But Jehoiaz uh, was supposed to be king, but in 2 Kings 23.31, it tells us that Jehoiaz uh, only reigned for three months before Egypt's pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh Necho, uh, deposed him and then installed Jehoiakim in his place. And so to say that confidence in the kingship was at an all-time low was probably an understatement. And so where do the people turn to um, for reassurance that everything will be all right? They can't trust the king uh, to deliver them through uncertainty. They just watched one of their kings die at the hands of the Egyptians, and then uh, another was deposed by the Egyptians, and now we have a puppet ruler. Okay, so what's big and seemingly been there forever and can provide assurance? Sound like God? No. No. They actually looked to the temple instead. The people had placed their trust in the temple building, hence the, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That phrase. And that was their theology. It, begin, it began and ended with the temple building. And remember, this, is temple, this temple is Solomon's temple. It was hundreds of years old. It was glorious and amazing. And it seemed to be like the solid pillar of society that would never change. And to be completely honest, their, uh, their rationale wasn't completely ridiculous. The temple was the one place that the Lord's presence was supposed to be. It was the one place that the Israelites could actually be with God. And so it was special. It was sacred. And the culture of the day said that gods don't let their temples get run over. Gods don't let their temples get desecrated and destroyed by infidels and by heathens and by pagans. And besides, this was the god, so obviously he wasn't going to let anything happen to his building. But because they put their trust in the building, as long as the building and the frame, uh, building's functions continued to be fulfilled, there really wasn't anything to worry about. You could do whatever you wanted, since as long as you had the building, it didn't matter. And verse 24 makes this very clear. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and forward, uh, and not forward. And so people are just doing whatever they want. Why? Because they've got this building. And it's awesome. And of course, because the Lord's going to protect it, by extension, he's going to protect us. And so the focus of the people is clearly on the ritual and the actual physical building, and not so much God anymore. And this is obviously unacceptable to the Lord. So check out how ticked the Lord gets in verse 20. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Nothing's going to survive this. And it's into this sort of cultural Judaism that where everyone's nominally an Israelite, but no one is actually devout, it's into this culture that Jeremiah sort of loves these truth bombs to shatter their false hopes and hoping that they're going to respond in repentance. So what's one of those, the first truth bomb that sort of Jeremiah lobs in there? Well, it's the focus, when the focus shifts, it blinds us. And Jeremiah and God are pretty blunt about this. Listen to verses 4 and 8. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. We believe the lie, and that lie blinds us to a whole host of things. That's what it means to be deceived. The wool has come over our eyes, and we don't see things clearly. Well, what do we miss when our focus shifts to the trappings of religion instead of the Lord himself? We miss at least two things. The first thing that we miss is that we miss that we're not actually good. We miss the fact that we're actually breaking all of these commandments, all of the commandments, actually. The people of Jeremiah's day think that they're all good, but they're not. Let's look at the laundry list that we get in verses 9 to 11. Will you steal? That's the eighth commandment, by the way. They break that. Murder, that's the sixth commandment. Commit adultery, there goes the seventh. Swear falsely, that's the ninth. Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, that's the first and the second. Two for one, awesome. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by, name, called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these, all these abominations. So that, that's the third, okay? Has this, house, um, has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That's probably the fourth, since they're probably not keeping the Sabbath holy while they're, you know, making the, ten, uh, the temple a den of robbers. And so they've hit eight, if I've counted right, eight of the Ten Commandments. And by doing all of this, they're probably not honoring their father or mother while they're doing it, and so there goes one more. And it's hard to steal without first coveting, so there goes the tenth. So they've broken literally all ten of the commandments. But do you notice how they think they are doing? They think that all they have to do is come and stand in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. They think they're fine. They think they're forgiven because of the completed ritual, but they're obviously not. Which brings us to our, the second thing that we've been blinded to, which is our foolishness. I mean, even if the Israelites missed the fact that religious rituals mean nothing without genuine spiritual transformation, God reminded them of the other time that people believed in the power of the temple to protect them, like some sort of protectionism talisman, okay? And so God sends them on a field trip. He sends them on a field trip to Shiloh. And Shiloh was the place where this tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was set up when Joshua, way back when they took, into, took the promised land, um, that's where they set up, okay? It wasn't Jerusalem, it was at Shiloh. And it was there for generations, from, the, from Joshua all the way through Judges up until uh, second, 1 Samuel, I think. It was there until it was destroyed. 
by the hands of the Philistines. So what happened? Essentially, the same thing happened uh, as in Jeremiah. And it's recorded in 1 Samuel 4, if you want to go check it out later. The elders of, the, of Israel had viewed sort of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the actual place where you met God. Um, they viewed the Ark of the Covenant as sort of a good luck battle charm. So sort of think Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Last, Raiders of the Last Ark, sort of cue the music. Da, 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 da. Okay, right? And anyways, you might imagine sort of what God thought of, like, let's just haul out the ark and no, no army can stand before us, right? A la sort of, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He didn't really like that. And so what happens? The Philistines win. So the first time they bring out the, you know, the special good luck charm, they lose. And not only do they lose, but they're destroyed completely. Because where they lose is Ebenezer, it's to the west of Shiloh. And they lose so bad, not only do they lose Ebenezer, but they lose Shiloh as well. So the Philistines kick their butt in Ebenezer, and then they just keep kicking them all the way through Shiloh and then destroy the tent of meeting. And so now, what's left at Shiloh? Nothing. It's a desolate wasteland. And so it's mind-boggling to think, this didn't work the last time, why should it work now? And so what's the reality? What's the truth? The reality is that the temple is nothing special. It's no, it's no talisman of protection. The reality is that obedience and genuine faith in the Lord are required, and we all get that. And the reality is that when your focus shifts from righteousness and the Lord, you often don't realize that your focus has shifted at all. Why is that? Because we're blind. It's because the trappings still look good. The temple still looked as majestic as it had before, regardless of the people's spiritual condition. And the people all just kept on doing what they'd always been doing, sacrificing in the temple, and so people talked themselves into believing that they were good too, even though it hadn't worked in, in the past. And so what does this mean for us? You know, I'm often blinded and distracted by the trappings of religion too. My focus often shifts from the Lord to the trappings of life. But instead of trusting in a physical building, I certainly focus on all the things that I have to do. I focus on how the ministry I do goes. Does it go well? Does it not? How many kids show up on, on Wednesday to youth group? How did the lesson go? I sometimes focus on the things that I don't do. I think if only I could learn how to play guitar, maybe I would actually be a good youth group youth leader, right? Maybe, my, maybe then my youth group will really take off, as if that was really the point, right? If only I could help the church grow and help it be more outward-facing, then all of my troubles, all of my problems would go away. Do you see how focusing on even these good things can keep me from focusing on the Lord himself? There are a million things vying for our attention, for our focus, for our trust, and most of them are good, and sometimes they're necessary. But none of them are the Lord himself. And when I trust in those things, what's the outcome? When I begin to focus my life on the trappings instead of the wonder of the gospel, what happens? Well, I certainly become less aware of my pride. I begin to get more snappy at my wife and my coworkers. And I begin to complain more when things don't go the way that I want them to go. I begin to demand rather than simply hope that things will go a certain way in my job and in my marriage. 
I, get, I begin to be more dramatic about my circumstances as well, as if everything was conspiring against me. And all of that conspires to make my spiritual life really dry because I'm not focused on worshiping in my doing. I'm just focused on doing. And in the midst of all of that, I simply don't see that I'm doing anything wrong. And it's a pretty subtle shift because I'm still doing church things. I'm still doing socially acceptable Christian things. And all of that's just not true. The truth is that I've made ministry, the church, or my vision for the church, my idol. And I'll bet that if you looked at your life and you looked at the way that you approach a lot of things in your life, you would say the same thing too. Truth bomb. Boom. What's left? Nothing. So what's the second truth bomb? As if we needed more devastation in our wake, right? Second truth bomb. When the focus shifts, we become hypocrites. People that are blind to their sins often become massive hypocrites. I hope you see the hypocrisy just throughout this whole passage. I hope, you, I hope you see the fact that the same people who offer the burnt offerings in the temple of the Lord, who by that offering are publicly assenting to the Ten Commandments and to the Lord's rule over their lives, those same people are practicing idolatry within their own homes. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough and make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Can you hear the outrage in God's, God's words? Can you hear the disgust at the hypocrisy? Do you see what they're doing? We could go back to verse 10, when the people stand in the house of the Lord like righteous children, like righteous good Israelites, all the while plotting their, their next sins. It'd be like you. We're all good Christians for the most part, and if you're not a Christian, welcome. Hopefully this, won't, this will be good for you, that you hear that Christians are broken people too. But it'd be like here, and we're thinking, in this room, while we're listening to the sermon, while we're potentially taking... Uh, the Lord's Supper, thinking, hmm, how am I going to sin again? Or that one thing that bedevils you, let's go do that again. Do you hear the hypocrisy of it? And all of it is done because we're more focused on ourselves and doing what is right in our own eyes and getting what we want than what is right, doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. When the focus shifts from God to me and my desires, the burden shifts from God to me as well. It's all on, if it's all about me, then it's all on me to get it done. Who else is going to have my interests at heart? No one. And so I will do whatever it takes to get what I want and end up on top, regardless of if it's sinful or not. And we, we sort of see that subtle shift in what, we, what, what we're going after, right? And we all know examples of people who claim to be Christian and then go do whatever they want, to get whatever they want. They claim to stand for truth and grace, but really they only stand for themselves. And why do they do it? It's because their focus is no longer on honoring and glorifying the Lord in all that they do, but on getting what they want. Do you see the idolatry lurking at the heart of it all? 
It's not just that we put our trust in something or that our focus shifts. It means that we begin to worship something other than God. When our focus wanders, it lands on whatever. But it's not just sort of like we're distracted and we're not thinking about anything. We're focused on something else. And that something else takes the place of God. And we who claim to be Christians then become hypocrites. And honestly, we cringe whenever we see this in other people. And yet we're hypocrites, just like the Israelites. I mean, how many times have you talked about the need to be gracious in a manner that's completely not gracious? Those people. They just need to learn how to be more gracious. It's ridiculous. Do you see what they're doing, what you're doing? So when the focus shifts, we're blinded to our hypocrisy. Well, is there anything else? Anything else that we, we're, we need destroyed? Well, the third truth bomb is probably the one that scares me the most. The third truth bomb is, when the focus shifts, we become stubborn and hard-hearted. How many times does the Lord call out to the people to amend their ways so that he can bless them? How many prophets must he send before they listen? Apparently, there aren't enough prophets for the Lord to send for the people to listen to him. Look at verse 13 with me. And now, because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. And then look at verses 24 to 28. It's just verse after verse after verse about stubborn people who refuse to heed the Lord's warning. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak to them uh, all these words, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, and they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It's cut off from their lips. Great. But why? Why are we stubborn and hard-hearted? Why don't we listen to the Lord's prophets and his word? We're stubborn because we don't think we need to listen. Remember that blindness to our true situation? Remember the hypocrisy that we see and we frankly don't mind? We're stubborn and hard-hearted because deep down, we think we know what's best. It sounds like you better not tell me what to do. Or what do you know about what's best for my life? And who are you to tell me what's best anyway? If only people listen to me, I could make everything better. Again, this is the walking in their own counsels thing. We don't see the need to change. We think we're doing perfectly fine, and so why change anything? Why rock the boat? And so when our focus shifts, we're blind to our sin and foolishness. We, we're hypocrites uh, out for number one because we're claiming, while we're claiming to be servants of Christ. We're stubborn and we're hard-hearted. It's not a pretty picture, people. And what can we do about it? Well, not much. Because we're stuck. Because we can't see that we have a problem. And we're not wanting to do anything about that problem anyways. We just don't want to change because change stinks. 
We need someone or something to overturn it all. We need someone to smash all of that hardness and to drag us kicking and screaming to something else. And the gospel does that for us. Because left to our own devices, we won't want anything with Jesus. We don't want anything to do with him. So to sort of rewind real quick, what did Jeremiah do about this need that we have? He sort of lobbed these truth bombs and destroyed these people's hopes and dreams and all of their security. But there's not a lot of hope moving forward in this passage. You know, Jeremiah explicitly is told not to pray for these people in verse 16. And verse 29 points a pretty grim picture. You cut off your hair and cast it away, raise a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. We get hope because we see that the Lord has only forsaken a generation and not the people. And so we wait for Jesus. And unsurprisingly, he also encountered quite a number of people who were focused on their trappings. So the Pharisees, even the disciples, the people. But what does he do? He smashes tables. It's the story in Matthew 21 of his cleansing of the temple, and there he quotes our passage this morning, where he says, he says, you have turned my temple into a den of robbers. And what does he do? He just smashes all these tables of these money changers and these robbers, and he drives them out of the temple. He literally overturned tables because people were focused on the trappings of religion instead of um, prayer and instead of God himself. But I think the key is to, to see what he did after he smashed tables and cleansed the temple. You see, Jeremiah lobs these truth bombs at people and just sort of lays waste and leaves them without a whole lot of hope. But Jesus, Jesus is not content to leave us forsaken. Jesus is not content to leave us forsaken. And because he's not content to leave us forsaken, he himself became forsaken. He became forsaken for us. Remember the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus was forsaken because sinners deserve to be forsaken. And so Jesus took the penalty that we deserve for our blindness, for our hypocrisy, for our stubbornness, and he went to the cross to die for stuck people like you and me. Amazing. But that's only one part of the gospel. You see, we're still blind, stuck, stubborn hypocrites. We need to change. And the Lord takes care of that too. You see, he went to the cross in a display of love for sinners so captivating that we come back to it over and over and over again. The, the Lord Jesus deals with our wandering focus by setting before us something so amazing, so unbelievable that we can't help but be focused on it. That's the gospel, right? And I tell, you, I, I tell our youth group this all the time, and I said it at the very beginning, that the gospel moves us. It doesn't just let us sit and declare that we're righteous. It doesn't just say, Jesus died for you, you're good. 
It reveals our blindness, our hypocrisy, and confronts us with our sin and tells you that you're a horrible, horrible, horrible person. And honestly, that's all of Jeremiah, right? But it never leaves us there. It always moves us. It never leaves us to wallow in the the horror of what we are. But it moves us to the cross. And it always does that. It always does that to reveal to us the wonder of the gospel, that we no longer are dead in our transgressions, but we have been made alive with Christ. That's the Christian life. It's a moving life. It's a changing life. It's a life that doesn't just say that you're terrible or that you're forgiven, but it says that you are both terrible and you are forgiven. And how do we grow in appreciation of the gospel? We grow in appreciation of the gospel by understanding more and more just how sinful that we are and just what we've been delivered to so that Jesus is the one that gets all the glory because he's the one that takes us from one place to the next. And so it always drags the focus back to Christ. That's the Christian life, right? refocusing on the Lord to come back to the heart of worship. And the heart of worship is where I'd like to finish this, this morning. The heart of worship is a song uh, written by Matt Redman. He's the writer behind a lot of the songs that we sing. Um, and not surprisingly, the worship at the church that he led um, was amazing. Back in the late 1990s, his church was enormous. It brought tens of thousands of people out. Thousands and thousands of people were hearing this music each and every day, uh, each and every Sunday, sorry. But by his own words, there was something missing. There's a struggle to keep the focus on the Lord in worship instead of on the music and the musical production itself. And so the pastor did something really radical. He got rid of the sound system and the band for a season. They sang everything a cappella, or not at all. And think about it. Here's a church whose worship leading was attracting thousands of people to a church to church on Sunday. Think of the sort of step of faith that it requires to shut that down, for the sake of refocusing on something that is better. They had something great. This worship but they wanted something eternal, and so they refocused it. And we're going to actually sing this song in just a few moments, and as we prep to sing these songs, this song, I want you to take some time this week and just now to stop and consider how your focus might be wandering from the Lord. And then consider how Jesus calls you back to himself in the gospel calls you to refocus on what's amazing, and that's grace. And so now listen to the words to hear the way that Jesus breaks through to reclaim the focus for Matt Redman. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart.
And so I am coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I am sorry, Lord, for the thing that I have made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and let's come back to the heart of worship. Let's pray. Father, we are a broken people, a people that are sinful beyond our wildest imaginations, and Lord, we are blind to all of it, to a lot of it, really. Lord, I pray that as we go, that we would have a new appreciation for our sin, that you would reveal it in us. As costly, as, as much as it might hurt, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see just what we're doing and how we are not focused on you. But Lord, I pray that you would be faithful to us as you promise that you will be, to move us back to yourself, that we would become a people not focused on doing, but a people focused on worshiping, worshiping in a true joy that only comes from you. And so, Lord, bring us back to the heart of worship, which is not just some doctrine, but a living, breathing person, you. And so, Lord, we pray this in your holy and matchless name. Amen.